Yes, so it was, what, about mm, 5 o'clock, I think, that Jordan was like, so do you think you can whip something up for tonight? Because, <laughs> like, a half an hour. And we were just driving back from the uh, Kalamazoo Museum at the time still, so I was like, I haven't even been home for half the day. Um, so thankfully, EJ was able to email us what he was already going to talk about anyways. Um, so this is helpful, so we already have some material and stuff. So kind of bear with me, as I have only had a, about a half an hour to look over this as myself. Um, but hopefully I can help you kind of understand some of the ins and outs of addiction and purity and things like that, um, as well as answer any questions you may have. Um, it's not really my concentration, like Jordan said, marriage and children and family is more uh, my specialty, but... This is something that I have uh, worked with, especially even within the family unit, as, as you know, that affects the whole family, too. So we can go ahead and get started. Um, so is this working? There we go. So that's EJ and his family. He had put some pictures of himself in there, so pray for him and his family. Poor EJ. <laughs> All right. I've never used this before, so... So addiction, that is what we're here to talk about tonight. And one of the things that we're going to kind of go over too, we're going to talk a little bit about definition of addiction and talk a little bit about, um, because a lot of times when we think about addiction, we think of just like drugs, alcohol, right, that kind of stuff. Um, But it really encompasses more than just substance abuse. It encompasses um, certain behaviors and activities that some people do as well. So we're going to kind of talk about all of that stuff. Um, there's a couple of definitions here that are helpful. The first one is actually put out by the American Psychological Association, and it's their most recent definition in 2017. Um, it says, addiction is a complex condition, a brain disease that is manifested by compulsive substance use despite harmful consequence. People with addiction, severe substance use disorder, um, have an intense focus on using a certain substance, such as alcohol or drugs, to the point that it takes over their life. So that's very specific to the substance use kind of addiction um, that, that will be part of what we talk about. Um, Another definition, though, that really gets beyond that, like I said, is that addiction is the repeated involvement with a substance or activity, despite the substantial harm it now causes, because that involvement was and may continue to be pleasurable and or valuable. Um, So I like that definition because it does encompass more than just substances, um, but it also is a great, I think it just words it really well to say this is something um, that people continue to do even though there is harm that's happening to them or those around them. Um, And because it is pleasurable, because it seems valuable to them, because it gives them these kinds of things and they continue to do it. And if at any time you have questions, even along the way, you don't have to um, wait to ask at the end. So, all right. So the first thing I'm going to talk about, though, that he had on here was purity, um, because if you think about it with addiction, maybe the opposite end of that or the opposite end of the spectrum, if you think about it that way, is purity, right? Um, Addiction is kind of this temptation that comes into your life over and over again. It's this kind of regular temptation that's happening, maybe a sin that um, has really manifested itself in your life. And so the opposite of that would be purity, which is what God asks of us as Christians. Um, So he kind of had some scripture here, starting with the Old Testament, Uh, that an emptying out or being clean is kind of a definition of purity opposed to being guilty, right? So it's the opposite of being guilty or these kind of addictive struggles. 
Um, purity stands over and against such conducts and attitudes as unfaithfulness to God's covenant and rebellion against his law, which Hosea 8 uh, talks about. Also, idolatry um, would be another uh, opposite of purity kind of a thing. Purity cons itself then consists of clean conscience and hands. Genesis 25 is, um, if you're familiar with it, the story where Abraham um, tells King Abimelech that Sarah is his sister because he's afraid that the king will kill him because she's so beautiful and want her for himself. And then the king is like, what have you done to me? And he finds out that it's actually his wife. Um, and so the king in this instance says, I, I wash my hands. I'm innocent of this. I didn't know anything about it, right? And so a lot of the language in the Old Testament is really this idea of washing your hands um, of the guilty thing and, and that kind of innocence. And so in Psalm, then the next one, Psalm 26, 6 and 73, 13, um, kind of have the same thing. Both of them talk about washing hands in innocence um, so that they're able to come around the Lord's altar, so that they have a clean heart, that kind of a thing. Purity is related to guiltless, blameless, or innocent behavior. Um, so purity isn't necessarily just a state of being, like now in this moment I am pure, right? But it's this idea that you continue to do these behaviors that are pure, that you continue to live your life in a way that, that um, is pure, right? That breeds purity, as opposed to the other things. Um, in the New Testament... Uh, there's little emphasis on ritual purity, which the Old Testament kind of has some of that with some of the um, sacrifices that would be offered and things like that. There was kind of ritual purity that was really talked about. Um, but in the New Testament, it's really more of a focus on attitude uh, toward members of the church in 2 Corinthians or even a moral purity or uprightness. And there's a lot of scripture that he has up there. Um, in fact, it would be helpful probably to read some of it. And so if maybe some people don't mind if you have your Bibles with you. Um, pulling out some of those and, and reading them for us. Uh, if somebody can get Philippians 4, 8, that would be great. And then somebody else get First Timothy five twenty two, maybe. Whenever you get one of them, uh, just let me know. <laughs> Jack's got something. What do you got? Philippians 4, 8. Philippians 4, 8. All right. Mm -hmm. So this is a really great, um, you know, verse to really point to the fact that not only does God want us to be pure, but this is a focus, right? We are to point ourselves towards things that are pure and good. Um, this is something we are to be striving towards and constantly working towards and a very, very much a focus for us. Uh, anybody have any of the other ones? Yeah. Okay. So that, again, is kind of a behavioral one, too, right? Don't partake in the sins of others and, and that kind of thing, but keep yourselves pure. And that idea of keeping yourselves pure, again, is this constant behavior that you're doing um, to, to stay pure. It's not something that you reach, and then you're there, and you just get to hang out in purity, right? It's a constant kind of thing that we have to be working on and striving for. Um, anybody have First Peter 3, 2? Anybody look that one up? <laughs> oh, okay, Jack. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, then that goes on there. So, so again, it talks about then the conduct, right, being pure. Again, that behavior and the, the way that you're living your life out. Uh, the last one, First John 1, 3. Peggy, okay. So that has probably more of the uprightness and being, we're in fellowship with God, right? We're in fellowship with God, and God needs us to be pure to be in fellowship with him too, right? Um, to, to be in communion with him. Um, also in the New Testament, so it's, it's a focus that we have, this purity that we're living out, but it's also associated with um, understanding, kindness, and patience, um, speech, life, love, faith, right? It's, it's associated with the way that we talk. It's associated with the way that we live, the way that we interact with other people, and a reverence um, that we have for God. So the last little part there that at the bottom talks about how the Apostle Paul's ministry um, was really enhanced because of the kind of person that he's shown himself to be, that he was always striving for that kind of upright purity, moral purity. And he encourages Timothy um, to set an example in his lifestyle and his purity as well um, with his relationships with believers. So there's a lot of different verses you can look up and some of these other ones on here. You know, if you, I, do we put this on the website, the PowerPoint or just, you know, okay. Well, if you're interested in having the PowerPoint, we can get it to you and you can look through some of those or write down some of those other verses. Um, but it's certainly something that's talked about a lot throughout the Bible. God puts an emphasis on it. Right? So it's something we need to think about and look at. So in the light of purity and knowing then that God says we need to strive for it, what do we do with addiction? Right? How do we deal with that? How do we handle it? How do we understand it? So that's where we're, we're at now, then, this addictions idea. So there are different types of addiction, like I kind of already mentioned. So the one side here has the substance-related ones. Um, from the very common ones that we are familiar with, like tobacco, alcohol, caffeine even. I know a lot of people don't like to think about that one being a <laughs> possible addiction. Um, Jordan. <laughs> I'm just teasing. He loves coffee. Um, two other things that are a lot more intense, like uh, cocaine and heroin and these other kinds of things. But like I said, behavioral-related addictions are also very real and just as harmful in a lot of ways. Um, gambling, internet gaming, hoarding has become a big thing, um, kleptomania, sexual addictions, pornography, food addictions, shopping, um, Facebook might be one of the newer ones that we can throw in there, right? Social media things, there's a lot of studies coming out about the addictive um, kind of components of those social media things and how they suck people in and, and the kind of ways that that's damaging now um, to, to people's relationships and even um, functionally as far as our brains are concerned. So there's a lot of different types of addiction. So keep that in mind as we're talking about this, that this isn't all focused on, like, if you're sitting here and say, well, I don't drink or I don't smoke or I don't do, you know, I don't smoke pot or whatever, um, so I'm fine because I'm not addicted to that stuff. Think about in your own life what is there something that holds you in a way that an addiction does. Um, if not, great. If there is, then, you know, hopefully this can be helpful and maybe uh, talking to somebody about that would be helpful as well. Always striving for that purity. So as far as counseling goes, as far as diagnosis goes, then there are certain criteria that need to be met um, in order for us to diagnose somebody with some kind of like substance abuse. Or This is kind of specific to um, substance abuse, but if you think about it, 
with other things as well, behavioral things, just addictive things, um, you could probably fit those in here as well. Uh, so there's, you can see that we usually categorize it mild, moderate, severe, depending on how many of these you, um, you meet, well, how many of the criteria you meet. So things like taking substance in large amounts or for longer than desired, um, wanting to stop or cut down on the use, but you can't, you don't feel like you're able to, there's something always kind of getting in your way and stopping you. Um, spending a lot of time getting, using, or recovering from it. Uh, this is one that people don't always think about, but this really entails spending a lot of time, effort, um, in trying to even get it. You're going out of your way on your way home in order to go and get this thing, even though it's like 10 minutes out of the way or more. Um, you are constantly trying to figure out where you can get it and how you can get it, right? It's kind of this all-consuming thing that takes up your time and your thought process. Um, so that's one of the red flags. Cravings and urges. If it impacts work, home, or school, and the operative word there to think about is or, right? So you could have, um, somebody could be addicted or have some kind of uh, addiction that doesn't really affect work. Maybe you're able to still go to work, be a good employee, function pretty well there, and so you're like, I'm fine because it's not affecting this, but you come home and everything's in chaos. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're like, well, my family, we're, we're good. Like, we get along well, we are happy, we're content, we have all these things, but you're struggling maybe at work or something. So it doesn't have to be across your whole life and every aspect that you're struggling um, because of this. And if it impacts one of those places, that's a problem, right? That's a difficulty, that's a struggle. Uh, continued use, even when it causes relationship problems. Uh, giving up social, occupational, or recreational activities in order to do it um, because it's getting in the way or interfering with those things. Maybe things that you used to do, used to enjoy doing, used to get together with friends, used to, you know, whatever that might look like, and now you don't because either you're busy doing the thing that you're addicted to or you're busy recovering from the thing that you're addicted to, right? It can impact it in different ways. Um, a continued use, even when you have a physical or psychological issue that could have been made worse or even caused by it. So again, the idea with the um, definition of it that you, there are harmful consequences and yet you continue to do it, even though you might see those. Needing more of the substance to get the desired effect, so building a tolerance to it, so you have to have more and more and more in order to get that good feeling that you get from it. Um, or withdrawal symptoms, which are only relieved by taking more of the substance. Uh, so that's another criteria. So we have some statistics uh, to talk about, and I think these statistics are really helpful because they mention a little bit in general about people in the U.S., but they really focus on Christians. Because um, if you're a Christian sitting here today, you might be thinking, well... Christians shouldn't be struggling with this stuff, right? Um, we're the ones who are supposed to be good and pure and, and always doing the right thing and making the right choices. And um, if you pray about it enough, then God will release you from it. And these kinds of ideas that we hear are kind of tossed around. Um, but you're going to see that it is a very real issue even for Christians and within the church, which is what makes it important for us to talk about. And which what also I think makes it um, good for anybody who's sitting here and thinking, well, I struggle with this or I struggle with that, that you are not alone. Right? And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you suddenly live a perfect life. So the statistics then, 23.5 million suffer from alcohol and drug addiction, specifically in the U.S. Um, in any given day, 700,000 Americans seek help for uh, alcohol and drug addiction. So that's a pretty high number as well. 
specifically pornography industry, this, this is a statistic that blows my mind, but the pornography industry profits are more than the combined revenue of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix. All of their revenue combined, and the pornography industry still um, makes more. So that's kind of a scary thing when you think about it, too. It's such a huge thing in, in, in the country um, and probably the world to kind of battle against, right? Which also means it permeates everything. Uh, so these next statistics are specifically with Christian men, um, 18 to 30-year-olds and then 31 to 49-year-olds. And you can see, without having to read all of the statistics, the way um, how a very high number look at it monthly or at work, um, view it on a daily basis. And even 32% uh, and then 18% admit that they're addicted. And these are Christian men, right? Sometimes we have these kind of myths about what Christians should look like or do look like, or we think, well, I, I'm failing at this, and therefore maybe I shouldn't, you know, I can't go to church because I'm, I'm, I have this hidden thing that, it, that I can't let anybody see. Um, but this is a very real thing that a lot of people struggle with. Um, married Christian men, 55% view it monthly, 35% have had extramarital sexual affairs, and don't be deceived, it's not just men, right? Christian women as well, 20% uh, say that they're addicted to pornography, and 60% identify struggling with lust. So it's a very real thing even within the church, um, this kind of addiction. Although the statistics, you know, still do show that men struggle more, women struggle more and more, and, and the statistics have kind of changed over the years, too, that more and more women are dealing with sexual kind of addictions and sexual kind of struggles um, in a way that they haven't in the past. Um, he has this other one here that has some stats about pornography again. One of the ones that I wanted to kind of point out, especially for um, parents or going to be parents and stuff, 90% of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn which is a very high number. The largest consumers of pornography are 12 to 17-year-old boys. Um, to me, as a parent, and we have daughters, but like I said, right, it's more and more women too, um, but that's terrifying to me as a parent and thinking, you know, don't be fooled. The fact that you are raising your kids in a Christian home doesn't mean that they are not still going to have access to this through friends at school and different things. So my big word there is just be aware and constantly be checking what your kids are watching and looking at and doing on the internet. It's so accessible these days that it's terrifying. Um, so that's the big statistics there just uh, to point out. So addiction, is it a choice or is it a disease? Anybody have any thoughts about that? <laughs> okay. You think it begins as a choice? Okay. A consequence of a choice is what Scott said. Okay. Okay. That's probably true, too. Um, in this case, I think what uh, disease means necessarily is that it's, um, that there is some kind of physical change or physical thing that is feeding into it as well. Um, as that's what the disease part would, would talk about. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, this is, I mean, this is a good question because there's 
a lot of loved ones of people who have addictions to different things um, who really struggle with this idea. Um, it's hard on them because they think they love this thing more than they love me because they won't stop, right? Um, or they put it, it's more important to them than I am, or I'm not enough for them because they have to keep doing this thing and um, they're choosing it over me kind of a thing. And so it's a really big struggle for loved ones, especially um, people who are surrounding that person and wanting to help them, and, and they kind of are caught in this cycle um, and just feeling like they're not enough, which is why it is so damaging for families and things like that. So first thing is to look at these images of the brain um, <clears throat> real quick. In talking about choice and disease, there certainly is an element of choice um, that comes into it as well. Even as we all know, whenever there's any kind of temptation, whether it's something um, you know that you're addicted to or not, there's always kind of this choice at the beginning. Do I do this? Do I not? You know, you, if you know what's right, if you know what's wrong, that kind of stuff. Um, but brain imaging studies are really showing that there's differences in the brain um, that are caused both by, uh, are both a cause of addiction and an effect of addiction. So there's been a lot of studies done looking at the brains of um, people before they have become addicted to, if they have images of that and stuff, before they've become addicted to, um, to some kind of substance or some other behavior and things like that. And there are actual neurobiological differences in people who become addicted compared to those who, um, who don't. And once they start using, then there are even more changes that we see in the brain that cause even more difficulty for that person then to stop what they're doing. Um, and so you can see how the healthy brain here has lots of different parts of the brain firing, lots of synapses are firing, lots of things are connecting, right? It's lit up, it's, uh, it's functioning in a lot of different areas. Um, but the addicted brain has a lot fewer places that are really functioning uh, when they're in the midst of that addiction. And so here's a kind of a top view of the same thing. So the healthy brain, again, has lots of things that are functioning and firing well, and then the addicted brain doesn't. And because the addicted brain doesn't have as many of those synapses firing and those things going on, the parts that end up going dark are the parts that have to do with judgment, that have to do with impulsive behaviors, um, that kind of stuff, which makes it then very difficult to quit the addictive behavior, right? So it may start with a choice, right, like we've kind of talked about too, and maybe there's a consequence of that, but even if it starts with a choice, the brain changes in such a way that it makes it very difficult to choose to stop doing it, um, physically makes it difficult. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but. So there are some myths of addiction to kind of talk about real quick too that he has here, seven myths. Uh, the first one is if you have a stable job and family life, you're not addicted, right? Life is good, so I'm fine to go ahead and, you know, do this thing that I do all the time. That's not necessarily true. You can be addicted to something and still function. You, everybody's probably heard the, the term functioning alcoholic, right? Um, somebody who, by all accounts, their life isn't falling apart necessarily, but they still have this addiction that they can't let go of that is maybe damaging their body probably more than anything else then. Uh, number two, addicts are bad people. Sometimes that is something that um, people feel which, of course, is not true either. Addicts aren't bad people trying to get good. They're sick people who are trying to get well, right? They have a problem. They have an issue um, that they've fallen into, and they're trying, hopefully, to, to get better. Um, and it's all walks of life, too. There's also some stigma about those 
people who get addicted to things, especially substance abuse and things like that, um, that maybe it's it's only low uh, SES people or, you know, it's men and not women or, you know, there's all these kind of different things, but it affects everybody, right? Anybody can get addicted um, and does, and, and we have so many people walk through our doors of all ages, genders, races, um, you know, status in life, different kinds of jobs. It, it hits everybody. Uh, the myth number three is that there's some magic bullet to treat all forms of addiction. So, oh, well, you're addicted. We'll just go to this program and you'll be all better. Um, the struggle and problem with that is that everybody is addicted in different ways to different severities and for different reasons, right? Uh, maybe they started using for a different reason. And so we have to look at the whole picture. And so there's kind of different treatments and things. And um, sometimes that can be frustrating for families and, and loved ones if something's not working well because we have to find the thing that's going to work the best for that um, person. So there is a little bit of that that happens. Uh, number four, that people don't need treatment. They can stop their addiction if they really want to. We kind of already talked about what happens with the brain and why that is difficult. Um, that doesn't mean you don't hear the miracle story once in a while of the person who just quit cold turkey, right? Um, and, and, but that's not, unfortunately, how it usually happens. Um, and it's usually a cycle that it really takes a lot to be broken. Uh, the fifth myth is that you have to hit rock bottom before you'll get help. Um, that is not true either. There are lots of people who get help before they hit rock bottom. And really, you want to try and get people to get help before they hit rock bottom because when they hit rock bottom, it could be too late right? Um, their bodies may be already damaged so much from maybe the, the substance or something that there is no coming back from that, um, things like that. Or the damage might be done already to their relationships to where it's, it's too late in that sense. So uh, myth number six, addiction is a choice. We kind of already talked about that. It's, it's not really a choice. There are some choices that go into that, but there's also a very real physical component that makes it very difficult for people. Um, and then number seven, addiction is my cross to bear. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say something like that, um, which is, you know, also not true. <laughs> um, it is something that sometimes I think people might use that as a justification to do it or as a crutch, right? That this is my, this is just my cross to bear. I'm, I'm working on it, but it's just going to be around and it's just going to be happening. Um, but if you have that kind of mindset, then obviously you're not going to recover. So there's a cycle with addiction that often happens. Um, usually there's some kind of emotional trigger, and this might be the place where the choice first comes in, right, is that the person has this emotional trigger. A lot of times addiction um, comes in all of its forms, behavioral or substance, um, starts because of some kind of personal trauma or difficulty in life, some kind of stress that triggers it. Um, generally people who are, you know, happy and everything's going well, don't tend to start up um, with it. So there's some kind of emotional trigger that happens. And then there's a craving. And that craving is really um, a, a craving to escape whatever caused that emotional trigger, whatever that feels like. How am I going to get, deal with this emotion and get rid of it? So there's usually a ritual that happens that the person ends up going through. Um, whether that's like how they get a substance or whether that's like how they figure out where they're going to go to do this behavior. Um, maybe even the ritual might include them going back and forth, going, I know it's wrong, but I really want it, you know, and so there's this kind of thing that they go through. And then they go and do whatever it is, the abuse of the substance or the addictive behavior, and then they feel guilty about it. And that guilt triggers 
emotional trigger, right? And so it's a cycle that continues going around, which is what makes it really hard to get out of as well. Um, the guilt is a really big piece. Any questions about anything? I know I'm kind of plowing through it a little fast here. Not so far. All right. So now that we've kind of talked a little bit about addiction, what it is, kind of what it looks like, um, wh how it kind of functions, what do we do about it, right? Recovery is the next piece because in all of this, we have to have hope. We have to have hope that there's something that we can do for our loved ones, something we can do for ourselves. Um, and so especially as Christians too, uh, we have to have hope, right? That's what we do. We have hope that not only can God work a miracle, like I said, the person that quits cold turkey and everything's great, um, maybe God worked a miracle in that case. Unfortunately, God's not a wish granter when we pray and automatically does whatever we ask. And so there are times where he uses other things like the church or um, you know, counselors or different people in the person's life to kind of step up and help them to get over this thing uh, the, and to recover from it. So it's okay to seek help is I guess what I'm saying there. So recovery, the treatment is kind of a three-point, um, I don't know why spiritual got messed up there, but it's kind of a three-point thing that we look at when we, when we talk about substance abuse. Because a lot of times you think, okay, somebody goes into a substance abuse program or some addictive behavior kind of um, recovery program, and it's all just focused on, well, what's your behavior, thing that you're addicted to, and how do we get you to not want that as much and stop it, and then we're done, right? Like, you're, it's all focused there. But really, there's three things that we have to look at. There's the spiritual aspect of that, which is really huge. And research has found that um, having some kind of spiritual connection, and the research isn't always, you know, Christian-focused, and so it's kind of spiritual in general, um, it talks about. But having that is actually a huge help in addicts recovering from different behaviors and substances. So there's a spiritual component to it. There's a physical component to it, like we've talked about with the brain and things like that. You have to actually start retraining the brain in a way and getting new synapses to fire um, in order to kind of get the brain to function the way it is that it's supposed to again. And a mental aspect to that as well, just thinking through everything and working through emotional, mental things that have happened. So it's kind of a three-point treatment process. So here, um, genetics make up number two there. I'll just go right to that first. 40 to 50% of um, people becoming addicted to things. Genetics, uh, research has shown and found that there is a genetic component to addiction. It's not all of it. It doesn't mean that if you have an alcoholic parent that you are going to be an alcoholic, right? Um, but it is something that we look at as a risk factor when we're talking to people and looking at their history of things. Um, the other, you know, 50 to 60% then is environmental factors and those choices that we make. And so when we're doing treatment, we keep in mind that genetics is a part of it, and so we do look at family history and things like that. But we also focus on those environmental factors, like I said. We, we look at the family. We look at their social environment. We look at the life events. We look at how can we help them to have better interactions and relationships with their family or the other people around them in those social environments. How can we help them look at life events that happen, understand them differently, and then give them new coping skills or give them new ways of responding to those things that doesn't lead them to go and use or go and do the behavior that they were doing before. Um, stopping addiction is not just a matter of cutting whatever the thing is out of your life. Stopping addiction really requires replacing it with something else. 
And as Christians, we obviously know that God is a big part of replacing that, right? Um, but also just helping them kind of understand in the day-to-day business of life, how do I cope with these different things, how to respond differently without automatically going to do the thing that I'm addicted to. It's kind of retraining um, habits a lot. And then we have to think about uh, the third thing there, which is co-occurring things like anxiety, depression, OCD behaviors, um, which a lot of times these substances or addictive behaviors are coping strategies for the anxiety, the depression, the OCD behaviors, and stuff like that. And so if we're treating somebody that has something like that going on with the addictive behavior, then we have to also treat that issue as well. So um, it's kind of a complicated thing to treat addictive behaviors because you have to look at all these different pieces uh, that are connecting and, and impacting that. All right. So he has a little um, like case study kind of thing here to kind of walk through a little bit real quick, just like what treatment might look like for somebody. Um, so this is somebody named Erica M., which is not a real person, so don't, right? Made up name, um, kind of just a generic situation. She's a 28-year-old married woman, uh, has two kids, a 4-year-old and an 18-month-old. Uh, her social environment, she is in a running club. She hangs out with family and friends. Her presenting problem is that Erica has been dealing with anxiety and stress for the past six months, and her son is turning five soon. In her words, she is seeking, to help, seeking help to get it together so she can put on a good party for her son. She also has been drinking more than usual and is scared that it might get worse. Um, so this is somebody who maybe is just starting to touch the tip of addictive right, behaviors or substance abuse, where it's starting to pick up, she's afraid it's going to get worse, um, and seeking help for that. So through the following sessions then, she reviews some other things, and this is where that environmental factor comes in as well in the history, and we talk about how there's like that emotional trigger in the cycle. Um, so for her, from age 5 through age 12, she was molested by her uncle, so there's a trauma in her past. She had her first drink of alcohol when she was 11 and continued to drink heavily until she started dating her boyfriend, who is now her husband, when she was 17. She has struggled with shame, low self-worth, and feelings of guilt most of her life. And I can say from working with lots of people that um, most likely all of those are stemming from that trauma that happened when she was a child. Drinking calms her anxieties and helps her with her memories of her past abuse. So you can see in a situation like this why the drinking would make sense, right? You can see why this would be a great escape for her in the moment because of everything she's struggling with and she would drink, and she feels calm for this brief, temporary period of time. So how do we help somebody like that? This is the kind of treatment that somebody might go through um, in this situation. So a lot of addictive behavior treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT for short, which is basically changing maladaptive thinking um, so that it changes the behavior and then the affect of that, right? So that's kind of the idea of CBT. We look at the thoughts. We try to figure out what, is, what, is, what are you thinking about the addictive behavior. In, in Erica's case, um, you know, she might be thinking, this calms me down. This makes me feel better. She might even be thinking this is the only thing that makes me feel better because uh, she's been doing it since she was 11, so she may not know anything else that she could do. So, she's, so her thoughts are going in that way. Um, and then dealing with the shame and things like that, she probably has a lot of thoughts dealing with that too. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not, right, all of these different things that come with that. Um, 
But Romans 12, 2, if you look at Scripture, because that's what we do, uh, it says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is what I think is great, because CBT, of course, is not like a Christian therapy. It's something that was created in the secular world of counseling, and a lot of therapies were kind of created out there. Um, but they make sense, or they can make sense within a Christian worldview, which is how I use them and other people at Cornerstone Christian Counseling use them. So if you think about it, if we're taking our thoughts captive, that's another scripture, right, to take every thought captive. If you're looking at your thoughts so that it can change your behavior, this is a very, very biblical principle, right, um, that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we're constantly renewing our thoughts, that we're constantly looking at things a new way in order to be transformed by them. So CBT techniques um, involve things like thought recording, so really actually writing down what you're thinking when you start to feel like the craving or the need for the addictive behavior. Um, pleasant activity scheduling, so it's, it involves a lot of like behavioral stuff as well, so you're looking at your thoughts. You're also purposefully changing behavior along the way. Um, journaling things, guided imagery, these are all kind of things that also kind of get into what you're thinking, what your emotions are, so that we can look at it together and try to make sense of it, right? And try to understand where it's coming from and how, um, how we can maybe transform it, uh, like the scripture talked about. Also looking at identity, um, who this person is. As Christians, we say you're a child of God, right? She's, uh, she f- needs to find her identity in her um, faith and in God, but also a mom and a wife and these things. Her identity is not all wrapped up in the abused child that she was or wrapped up in the um, addictive behavior or substance, in her case, the drinking that she's doing. Um, There's accountability that comes with it, of course, and then boundaries that have to be put into place as well. Um, But this is kind of a progressive thing that happens, so like boundaries. You, can, you start talking about that stuff, but it's going to be really hard to put boundaries in place at the beginning if the person isn't ready to do that yet, right? If they're still really deep and struggling in there. So you start with those thoughts, and you start with those little behavior changes and stuff, and you kind of move your way towards that. So that's just kind of an example of some of the treatment and stuff that um, helps with addictive behaviors. So it's nothing scary. It's nothing weird. You're not a crazy person if you go looking for help, right, Um, for something like an addictive behavior or or a substance abuse thing. Um, So kind of in wrapping up, things to remember scripturally, spiritually. First of all, that God desires for every person on this, uh, that is on the path of addiction or suffering from it to be set free. John 8, 36 talks about um, sin and, and sin kind of, um, getting a hold of you, making you a slave to it, right? And that's what exactly what addiction is. You become a slave to whatever that thing is that you're addicted to. And so um, scripture says that if you find yourself in Christ, though, you'd be set free. Um, and so this is God's desire for us. He doesn't want us to be slaves to sin. He wants us to be free from it. Number two, that help begins with confession, which is not something that we're very good at all the time in the church, Right? Um, confession is scary. Confession means you're vulnerable in that moment as you're telling somebody about something that you're doing. Um, but that is really where it begins. You have to confess that something is wrong, that something is uh, you're struggling with this thing and you need help. Um, number three, a person is powerless to stop an addiction on their own. Um, this is mostly the truth, right? Like I said, there are always those exceptions and outliers of that person who just quit it on their own. Um, but most of the time, 
they're powerless to do it on their own. And this is where the church comes in, right? I mean, that's what the church is supposed to be. We are supposed to be there to support one another, to encourage one another in love, to hold each other up when, when we're struggling or can't hold ourselves up. Um, if somebody confesses something to you, stand by them and hold them up in that, right? That's what we do. They can't do this on their own. You can't do it on your own if you're somebody who's struggling with something like this. None of us, actually, if you think about it, when it comes to sin, none of us can do it on our own. That's why we need God. That's why we need Jesus, right? Um, we can't do this on our own. So why do we expect people who are addicted to do it on their own? doesn't really make sense. Number four, recovery is a journey. Again, that three kind of, well, the, the emotional and mental is kind of the same. They're spiritual, emotional, physical. It's a journey. They have to work through it. It's not something that happens like that. Um, you can't just take the addictive behavior or the substance away and have everything be good, right? It's a process that they have to work through. Um, and then number five, addiction masks other issues. So if somebody is addicted to something, whether it's a behavior or a substance, and if you are, then there's probably something else that's going on underneath. There's something else that you are hiding from or covering up. Um, and so it's helpful for us to understand that and know that because if you know somebody who's struggling with this, and you can be more supportive in a different way, right, in understanding their struggle. So that is that is all that he gave me. So, yeah. So if we're trying to help somebody that's um, addicted and came to us and said, you know, I need help, what if, I, if I'm listening to you correctly, if we start with, I think that's my question. Um, but yeah, if we start with the boundaries first. Mm-hmm. It could be part of it. Um, I mean, boundaries, like I said, are important, and you can introduce like them slowly as you kind of go. But if you kind of start there without doing some of the other work, a lot of times they just feel trapped and end up just pushing against it instead and kind of feeling like they have to break out of it and, um, and damaging any work you may have done. Um, so if you have some boundaries, like if you are helping somebody and you already have tried to set some boundaries in place, don't necessarily take them away now, um, but maybe, you know, obviously try to get them to maybe a professional too for help, but um, go back and start working on some of that underlying stuff. I mean, that's, that's the key um, because it, addictions come from, right, a feeling that they need this thing. Why do they feel like they need this thing? And if we can't answer that question and we can't help that issue first, then they're going to continue to feel like they need this thing. And then no matter how many boundaries you put in place, it's not going to take away the need that they feel. So... Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Because boundaries are good, and healthy boundaries can be very good and very um, helpful, but... Like you said, even with teenagers are a great example, right? How many times you put your foot down, it makes them want to do it more, <laughs> right? It's the same thing when you're, when you're addicted to things, or any, any of us probably experience that with different sins or temptations in life. Like, if I can't have it, I really want it. 
Um, so we have to kind of address those other things and figure out how to deal with that uh, before those boundaries will probably make sense or function very well. Any other questions about anything? Okay. Um, if, uh, this is just a little side note, if you find yourself thinking, man, I'm struggling with something that maybe I could use some help with, or you know somebody else who could really use some help, um, you know, don't stay silent. That's my big plug. Don't just hide it and, and keep it to yourself and um, be broken by it because there is healing and there is recovery for these things. And so please, 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 whether you're going to a friend, whether you're going to your minister or another person in the church and saying, I think I have an issue and I think I need some help. Um, we, have, we know great counselors and people um, that I work with and other you know, areas and stuff too. So uh, there is help out there. So don't stay silent. That's my big, that's my ending thing. If nobody has any other questions. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. um, even though, like, say your father or grandfather or whoever was an alcoholic, mm -hmm. does it necessarily mean that your addiction would be alcohol, or could it be because of its genetic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not necessarily that it would be alcohol, because the genetic piece isn't necessarily like your body is going to know from a child that you want alcohol. Um, the genetic piece is really that uh, structuring of the brain that we were showing um, between like a healthy and addicted brain is that there are certain um, parts of the brain that fire differently and there's certain parts about judgment and imp impulsivity and things like that that maybe are set up differently genetically that predispose you to addictive behaviors because they don't function as well. And just because you might have that genetics in your background doesn't necessarily mean you're Right, because how many people know of somebody who, you know, they're like a parent is an alcoholic, maybe a, that's a common example, um, and they have three children, two of the children are doing great, right, they don't have any issues with any addictive behaviors, but one maybe does, right, so if it's genetic, does that mean, you know, that all three of them are going to, no, because it's only a part of the, it's like a piece of the puzzle, because um, environmental factors still play a role, social environment still plays a role, choice personal choice still does play a role. Um, but all the genetic piece really means is that there may be a piece that is um, functioning differently in the brain that makes you more susceptible to addictive behaviors, if that makes sense. But if you learn how to deal with those from a younger age too, then, then you can also bypass that as well. Other questions?